Expand and impact. Internal transformation for external impact. Achieve your goals without sacrificing yourself. I'm Violetta Znarkowski, but you can call me Violet. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the Expand and Impact podcast, a space where we discuss how you can create a successful life that is an authentic expression of you and where we also explore the intersection between personal development and gender equality. Today, I'm inviting you to join myself and my dear friend, Stacy Camacho, a psychotherapist, a mindfulness coach, and a yoga and meditation teacher. I'm not going to lie to you, this conversation is kind of intense. We explore pretty confronting topics that are uncomfortable, but ones that absolutely need to be talked about and explored if we want to see a change on a collective scale. Stacy is born and raised in Trinidad and Tobago, a country that is one of many impacted by colonialism. As a light-skinned woman living as a minority in her country, and someone who has over 20 years of clinical experience working with a number of diverse populations in both her private practice and outreach programs, Stacy was able to shed some light on the impacts of colonial and intergenerational trauma, and she also shares her wisdom on how the best way to cultivate more sustainable happiness, contentment, self-love, acceptance, and joy in your life is through the pain and suffering that we all experience on different levels, not despite it. We dive deep into white privilege, colonialism, how culture impacts our self-esteem and self-worth, and how we can use different therapies and practices to gently create a safe home within ourselves that will trickle out to the greater community. It takes a very strong and brave person to dedicate their lives to being in service to others and educating about the impacts of trauma and what we can do about it to create safer, healthier, and more equitable communities around the world. Stacy is someone who believes in the importance of doing her own work and looking at her own pain in order to be able to see, understand, and guide others through their pain. Stacy has a master's degree in psychotherapy and another one in Buddhist psychology and contemplative psychotherapy. She is also the co-founder and director of the NGO's It's for the Kids Foundation, and MindWise. She actively pursues advanced trainings from her mentors and continues to explore her own mind through practices like mindfulness, yoga, meditation, and of course, psychotherapy. Her experiences bridge Western and Eastern healing and therapy practices together to treat physical, sexual, emotional, and relational trauma which is usually the root of her client's mental distress, so that they may experience emotional and mental freedom. She believes that her role as a mental health professional is not only to provide psychotherapy, but to also provide preventative mental health services in the form of emotional intelligence and neuroscience-based programs to the community at large. Stacy also works with her MindWise team on public education and mentorship. It is her intention that these will be a catalyst for new levels of healing, growth, and 
transformation throughout her entire community. As you can tell by now, Stacy comes with a world of knowledge and experiences, both personal, professional, academic. And if you're ready, then I'm ready to share this episode with you because there is a lot of gold and a lot of wisdom to be had in this conversation. Let's get to it then, shall we? What informs your identity? I think that there is the overpowering um, impact of the society I was raised in and their culture and their views of a light-skinned woman that have impacted me. And I know that they have power. But I do um, think at this point in my life that I'm exploring more of making a decision of how I want my identity to be more from an internal place, less from conditioning. So I guess trying to recondition a lot of things that I don't want anymore. You know, it's a lot of conscious beliefs that have been part of my identity as a woman, as a Trinidadian woman, you know, and feeling like they just don't serve me. And I've been working really hard on being able to let those go and um, replace them with ones that serve my higher purpose. Me being happy, me being confident, me being fully vibrating, positively energetic, you know, what I value in my life, which is to wake up every morning and feel embodied in a way of where I am giving to the world in a positive way and to others and to myself in all my relationships, in my work, in every area of my life. So a lot of those identities and stories about myself that I had served no purpose. And well, didn't serve that purpose. Like confidence, vibrating energy, making deeper connections with people, they actually did the opposite. And in terms of my happiness and my joy. So I am more thinking that my identity is more influenced now, hopefully less by those things, but I know their power. Um, and more by my heart and my spirit. Mm. That's a really beautiful answer. And to me, it sounds like you know the hardships of having different expectations and labels placed on you, especially coming from Trinidad, which I'd love to hear more from you in a moment of what that was like, especially as a light-skinned woman. And what I'm hearing is that you're still on the journey of stripping away those expectations and those labels that are preventing you from having a deeper connection with not only with yourself, but how you connect with others in a way that allows you to still have like a steady grounding, steady contentment and steady peace in your life without giving into maybe even the criticisms or societal conditioning that you come from. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Would you be open to sharing more about 
sort of where you were and where you are now. So for our listeners, there's so much that I'd love to get into conversation with you about, and we'll see how much time we have together, but where you came from and kind of where you are and how it was to experience growing up in Trinidad. I think a country that many people don't know much about or they know about the festive side of it, but not the reality of actually being born and raised. Yeah, yeah. Wow, well, I um, I was born in the 70s. So I was a child of the 80s. And growing up in the island was unbelievable. Like, just your interaction with nature, and in those days, there was one TV in the whole house. We didn't really watch TV. You lived outside and you lived with family and community. And I, that I am grateful for. And that's the one um, neural pathway I want to keep in terms of having a deep understanding and feeling of what it's like to live in community. Um, and that was like a lot during the 80s. You know, Trinidad was mainly middle class. It was very chilled, not much global influence. You know, we ate local products. We went to local events. It was just a lot of local music, very small little island Caribbean life. You know, um, I never felt I was the minority, but I just thought that that was just the reality of life. I never felt like the minority because I just thought that's just the way the world is. Majority of people are dark skinned and the <laughs> minority of people are light skinned, but I didn't feel like minority. I just felt like this is the world, you know, this is life. Sure not. Yeah, I went to school where there was two light skinned people in the classroom. It's just not, there was never any thing, you know, but I did notice somehow that the neighborhoods that I lived in had not majority white people, but the majority of white people lived in those neighborhoods. But it was still not majority white. Mm -hmm. But it, it was weird. It's 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 hard to describe, you know. And that was always like, I wonder how come, you know, like why is it like that? So then, as you know, going away to the U.S. and being exposed to a whole different world when I was seventeen at school. It definitely was a realization that I had light skin privilege. Even though I was the minority, there was a class privilege. And that's why all the, in quotation marks, white people lived in certain neighborhoods. But I never really thought of it before I went to the US. I don't know why it happened there, but there was more consciousness around division in the US than there was in Trinidad. I think we just like, well, we're a big one happy family. It doesn't exist. Yeah. You know, we didn't never talked about it. You know what I mean? So I realized that there definitely was a privilege of entering a country, not as a slave or indentured laborer. And it came with my skin, complexion. It was a representation. It's what I started to acknowledge for the first time. I think in Trinidad, it's just not talked about. Going to the US and being educated, about diversity more in Miami, where there's a lot of diversity where I went to school, I was able to be like, whoa, I have privilege. And my light skin privilege is a representation of colonialism because my family didn't come as indentured laborers or slaves. 
because Trinidad, 50% of the population is black and they came there as slaves and 50% of the population are Indian we came as indentured servants, which is the same thing as slavery, just slightly different. They were paid, but they were paid nothing and they didn't have a choice. It's same, same, but different. Yeah. I, and that's the majority of my population and I never acknowledged their history. That's such an interesting experience that you had because you know where I grew up it's the complete opposite my heritage is uh, my my parents are have immigrated from Poland and I'm me and my brother are the first to grow up in America and to be born in America but I haven't met many people who had the opposite effect of being the minority as a light-skinned person because in the colonial world and in the western world it's very commonly talked about in the opposite way so to hear some of your experiences of it being the opposite for you, I find that to be a really powerful perspective on how you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. And you can't acknowledge what isn't discussed and how there can be a whole world outside of your own very experience that you don't know exists until you get curious to actually ask questions and lean in and learn about it. Exactly. And I didn't know that there was like eras of people that were really struggling. You know, I mean, on TV, everyone's dark skinned. All the politicians are dark skinned. All your doctors are dark skinned. The lawyers are dark skinned. Everybody, the majority. So I never saw like it, you know what I mean? But it definitely, a majority of the population was still suffering from the history. You know, that was kind of like, Oh, that's the past. And there was not an acknowledgement that not everyone coped with their history well. Some, I mean, they're politicians and they're whatever, and they're doctors and they're lawyers and they're very successful. All my teachers in school, none of them were white, you know, that kind of thing. But not acknowledging that there's a whole section of the population that was badly affected by it. And um, that wasn't talked about. Um, and yeah, and it, and, and it wasn't acknowledged. But how I got to acknowledge it was when I came back to Trinidad because I was studying psychology, I started doing volunteer work. So I went 100% into it because I worked with neglected and abandoned kids, kids who couldn't read and write. This first thing I did actually when I moved back home because of my knowledge of what happens in America um, with the underprivileged and the dark-skinned issues and stuff, I was like, okay, I need to check on that in my own country. And I started volunteering for um, an organization that was literacy for children. And that was my first entry into the underprivileged and really feeling my privilege for the first time because I didn't feel privileged in America. Um, I'm an international student, not nearly American with this accent and whatever. <laughs> It, being an international student in America is not easy. Um, but however, Miami wasn't so bad because they have so many international students. Colorado was a very different situation for me, but Miami didn't really feel that bad. I just felt not American, but it is okay. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's so diverse. There's so many people like you. So it didn't feel, I didn't feel alone or didn't feel any kind of like bullying or anything. It's just, I wasn't American, you know? Yeah. Um, and that I couldn't work, those kind of privileges, you know? Yeah. Um, and I'm spending a set of money on school and all that stuff. 
But going back home, I was like, whoa. Like indentured leadership and slavery has had an impact on these people. And some people just didn't get by. And then I started to do some research and read some books and start to realize why that happened. And I went deeper into that, deeper into that for the, for the next 13 years of my life. I worked 50% of my time was spent in underprivileged neighborhoods in Trinidad working. I have goosebumps about it. And my family supported me during the process because I wasn't getting paid. So again, I come from privilege. So I was living with my parents and my dad was like, I am so supportive of what you're doing, like giving back. You know, he was raised there. Yeah. He believes in giving back and all that stuff. So he helped me out in terms of, I didn't have to pay rent or food or shelter, blah, 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 blah. And I got 50% of my practice was done for free. Working all over Trinidad, I founded NGOs. I did so much stuff, really getting into it. And I read and I joined this and that and really got aware of what was going on in my own country around lack of social services for the underprivileged and how the underprivileged were going through intergenerational trauma. It was no acknowledgement of it. And I don't think it's anybody's fault, really. I think it was lack of education. And my heart goes out to Trinidadians because I think we also thought that we needed to be like the first world. It's like colonial trauma, right? So my simple upbringing was not considered good enough. You know, everybody thought that, I, that we needed more. We needed a foreign education. We need more foreigners. We need more McDonald's. We had this mindset that we needed more in order to be accepted in this world as Trinidadians. We were too simple. We live in this simple island life with our little local food. We have a foreign food. We have a foreign company. A foreign person comes. It's like, ooh, we are now accepted. We're now part of this world. And we all kind of grew up with that mentality, sad to say. And that's like colonial trauma, right? Thinking you're less than according to your skin color, but this was thinking we're less than because we're small TNT, you know, the island with no name and our passport can't get us to America or anywhere. We have to line up in the hot sun and go through a hell of an interview in order to go to anywhere that we look at the movies and we're like, whoa, you know, it, it was like that. So we kind of sell our soul to the devil in the end. We gave up agriculture. We went completely into oil sold our oil to all the foreign reserves. So I can understand what our government did, even though people are angry at them. It was kind of like they thought that that was what was best, you know. And what happens when that happens is a huge sect of your population gets more oppressed. Because those that can't work in the oil, what's going on with them now? So that section of people that could have been treated for trauma at that time, they got completely dismissed. And it just got worse. And now we're one of the most dangerous countries in the world per capita. The crime is. I'm wondering if you can share more about intergenerational trauma. And for those that don't have much experience of what that means, how that looks like, how that may appear in your life. Because whether you come from Trinidad or similar to me, um, ancestry that comes from a war-torn country you know my parents um they escaped poland like back on the tail end of communism and my grandparents lived through world war ii so coming from a country where 
that was dominated by like Nazi occupation and Soviet rule at the same time still has the impact of generational trauma for the generations that come after, even though it looks different than a country like Trinidad, who is still very much in the depth of that disparity and that segregation within its own country and still very much experiencing um, severe levels of poverty, for example. So I'm wondering um, if you can speak more about what that is and how that looks like for those listeners that maybe aren't so familiar, because I think it touches intergenerational trauma touches more people than we care to admit. Yeah, it really does. And it's different levels, you know, because I could acknowledge my intergenerational trauma and that has more to do with a family system issue, you know, whether there was um, emotional neglect or being spanked or harsh criticism that affects a human being, you know, emotionally unavailable parents and, you know, that sort of stuff. But that is a different thing. You know, intergenerational trauma is huge. It's like war, like what you were saying, slavery. So this is a whole different ballgame. And so I am also a privilege of not experiencing that because my parents didn't come from that. My great-grandparents migrated from Spain and Portugal by choice. You know, it wasn't, they weren't being killed or they weren't brought and bought and abused. You know, so there is mental hygiene that's a privilege. Like mental health and physical health is part of your privilege. You know, um, the fact that it's kind of like two babies come into the world and one's born in war and one's not. Mm-hmm. That's your privilege right there. It doesn't matter even know where you're born. It matter what country, the fact that those two countries, one is war-torn and one isn't. And that's the difference between my ancestries and the, the, the ancestries of the dark-skinned people in my country. That's just, the diff- that, it just starts right there. And one is being impacted by intergenerational trauma and one isn't. And intergenerational trauma is really, so trauma itself, I usually use these two words, extreme helplessness. Your will has been stripped of you. You have no right, no safety, zero, 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 zero. It's extreme helplessness, complete. Think of being pinned down by a chair and you literally cannot move. You have no will, you have no right, you have nothing but complete being the victim. That's like a huge, like, think of what that feels like in your body. I mean, I have goosebumps just listening to you give that description. And I already notice in my own body, like a shortness of breath just by listening. Exactly. Think of being in your body for the majority of your life. You feeling that way for an expanded period of your life. Some people who come into my office, they experienced it for five minutes when they were attacked, right? Well, I was held at gunpoint. So I know what that feels like for that however long scenario happened but this is intergenerational trauma is where this happened months years weeks days days weeks years you know this is extreme think of what that does to the psyche the soul the heart the body of a human being 
So how does that look like on a greater scale? Well, on a greater scale, like for your country, because at the start of this, at the start of our conversation, there's a couple things I want to unpack here is how that intergenerational trauma manifests within the individual, how that will look like, which contributes to um, the society and the collective as a whole. When an entire country is oppressed, it's going to have a certain impact and um, the culture is going to transform in very specific ways. And also at the beginning, you mentioned that um, you are also still healing and recovering from the impacts of how it was being a light-skinned woman growing up in Trinidad. Well, there wasn't really an impact for me there that was negative. No, I wouldn't say that growing up a light-skinned Trinidad is, is, is traumatizing at all. No, I wouldn't say culturally I had, but I think that there was intergenerational trauma going on with a huge sector of my population, definitely. Okay, let's start there then. And then I'd like to transition to you sharing more about some of your personal journey and evolution to be able to come to a place to hold the type of work that you're doing. Because unless you process some of your own experiences, it's really easy to be consumed by the pain and suffering of others. So the fact that you're here in front of me sharing your experiences and your knowledge shows that you have done a lot of work on yourself to be able to move through the world and move through your work and be there as a support for other people from a kind and compassionate and wholehearted place. And that doesn't just happen. You know, you could be a kind person, but when you start to hold the suffering of other people, very different parts can emerge because it's heavy. You know, as we speak right now, I feel the heaviness in my body of um, intergenerational trauma and what that means on a bigger scope. So I could address both points of view, like as a therapist and a, and a human being doing this type of work and also um, the viewpoint of, of, of societal trauma. So the thing about trauma, trauma has a lot of beauty in it and a lot of darkness. And I've seen that in Trinidad and Tobago. So I've seen one of, for me, of course, I'll be a little biased, but one of the most beautiful cultures on this planet. And that came from suffrage. 99% of my population, because less than 1% are, I would say, privileged, right? Light skin, didn't come with trauma. So I'm talk I talked to privilege from the mental health point of view, right? So mentally came with stress. So the Indians were occupied by the British and then they were brought by the British when slavery ended as their indentured servants, hashtag slaves, right? And then of course the blacks were brought as slaves. Um, so you have 99% of my population, that's them, right? Um, and what they have what they, the culture they have created is quite incredible. The music, so the steel pan was born out of trauma. Carnival was born out of trauma. The communal aspect of Trinidadian was born of trauma. Our warmth towards human beings, our need for connection and community was born out of trauma. Our reverence for um, 
each other's religion. We have um, Diwali is a public holiday, Eid al-Fatr, which is the Muslim holiday. So Diwali is the, the Hindu holiday. Eid al-Fatr is the, is the um, Muslim holiday, Catholic holiday, Shelter Baptist holidays, all public holidays that everyone celebrates and, and, and has knowledge about. So the, the diversity isn't like you are Indian Trinidadian. No, you're Trinidadian. You're Black Trinidadian. No, you're Trinidadian. That's why I never felt like the minority. I wasn't the white Trinidadian. I was Trinidadian. I never felt. That's why there was no trauma for me being minority. At least in my experience. Because we're all Trinidadian. It didn't matter. You know what I mean? But then I later was able to realize that I did have privilege. Because I came... I, did, I came free. Well, 99% of my population did not come free. And with that comes privilege. And, and because of that, I had class privilege, more access to income, you know, because of colonial stress, because of the, the Brits hiring white people and that whole kind of scene, you know. Um, and then we got independence and that changed. But still, it, there was still a colonialism lent into oppression. The white man is better. Right, so there's that mentality that is is there, that was there that I didn't really notice until I really looked. But anyway, so that's so there's beauty. What I'm trying to say is that, and I've done I've done work. So for instance, I've done work with brothers, same exact background, one dealt with their trauma different to the other. Right, and I think that that goes for the culture. I think some people they struggle with their mental health. They struggle with everything, with a lot. And some push through it, got their degrees. They're now politicians. They're now doctors. They're now lawyers. They're the most successful businessmen in the country, blah, blah, blah. And they're dark-skinned. You know what I mean? So the formula for that is, up to now, I don't know what formula, but there is definitely some people deal with their trauma differently than others. That's, yeah, what's what's coming to mind right now for me, as you're saying, first, firstly, I just wanted to take a moment and pause to repeat something that you said that I thought in its simplicity was so profound. I didn't know until I looked. Yeah. I think that that sentence alone can be applied to so many things and is a testament to what's possible for a human life and for any type of success or achievement or healing that you strive for. Yeah. Yeah. And that goes towards my own work. So I did that work for so long and then I burnt out and I didn't know why. And then I discovered I had vicarious trauma and only until I looked because I thought life, I thought that once you work, you have stress and you're exhausted and you get bouts of depression and that was normal and anxiety. No, it's not. It's not normal. And um, until I decided to look at that is when I realized I was experiencing vicarious trauma. Can you explain what that is? So vicarious trauma is the fact that we, when you are doing work with trauma patients, you start to absorb. Okay, so it's empathy. So it's based on empathy and mirror neurons. So mirror neurons are the fact that we could sit in front of each other. You tell me your story. 
and I start to feel physically the exact things you are feeling. And if I do that too much, say I do that every day, I was doing that every day, five to eight hours a day for 13 years. You know what I mean? What's going to happen at the end of that 13 years? You know, and it didn't ha it happened between those 30 years, I would have bouts of depression. But I just thought it was normal. You know, I did not recognize vicarious trauma until I went back to study and vicarious trauma became a topic in the psychology world because this was not really acknowledged in our industry. It's still something that I think isn't acknowledged that much. Yeah, it's acknowledged by a very forward-thinking psychological community um, because mirror neurons and all that research was done more in the, 90, the recent times. So the fact that we feel each other's trauma and that trauma is kept in our bodies, even as a child in a house with their parents fighting, the trauma is kept in that child's body. They may not even see their parents fighting, but they feel it and they feel the nervous, fearful energy and how that impacts their life is mirror neurons. And recognizing this, that we are interconnected and it's actually a scientific fact. Yeah. Um, I had the privilege of studying that under my own, one of my own mentors and trainers in the counseling education and trauma work that I did. And it's amazing to really experience the opposite of what you've normalized. So when you were immersed completely and doing this work every day, it became normal for you to have bouts of depression. It became normal for you to maybe feel a bit uneasy or to feel stressed and to feel tense in your body. And this idea of you don't know until you look, going back to what you said, you don't know how it feels to be at ease until you experience that. Because it's so easy to normalize these things that we are exposed to um, on a daily basis and on a wider scale. And same with the opposite. If you do come from let's call it privilege, where you don't experience maybe that much stress or we don't. it doesn't even need to be systemic stress like we've been talking about, but um, being in a stressful work environment or coming from a stressful family home, they're ex stressful experiences on a completely different scale. They're on opposite ends, but the impact on the body is the same. And I think we live in a culture that tends to normalize these unhealthy sensations in the body and then different behaviors and thought processes and illnesses manifest from that. And I know that a lot of the work that you do is somatic based, which means from the body, through the body, incorporating how, um, how memories are stored on like through the body and also mindfulness practices. So outside of your um, like cognitive talk therapy, you incorporate these different modalities that maybe let's say like in the last 50 years have been kind of brought more into the mainstream. Can you talk a little bit about how somatic practices and mindfulness help to reconnect us with these feelings that we all aspire to cultivate more of in our life? Yeah. Everyone wants more freedom. Everyone wants more joy. Yeah. But how do you get there? And for those that don't believe it's quite possible to have that as like your baseline. Yeah. 
So I don't really like, I don't favor top down, bottom up. It's a combination of both because we are not that stringent as human beings. The human being is so complex that the methods need to be combined. So for example, in terms of trauma work, you talked about looking inside, right? Um, Self-awareness is the light towards healing, right? So, so if I wasn't self-aware of the robotic life I was living that was making me sick, I would not get better. So the first light needs to come from the mind, right? The mind connecting to the body. So the mind being able to watch the body is the first step in awareness because analyzing, looking at your own mind, you're not gonna really get much places. It's very difficult because the mind is rumbled with 10 zillion things at one time. It's just the nature of the mind. It doesn't mean that, oh my God, I think so much. That's what people come to me and they say, I'm like, you don't think so much, you're a human being. You just have a brain. <laughs> yeah, you have a mind that thinks. The monkey mind is what the Buddhists call it. It is the natural organic weaving of the human mind. So when you start to analyze your own mind, you end up in a hot mess, right? And that's traditional psychotherapy. That's why they lent into a hot mess in therapy for 20 years doing psychoanalysis. However, if you use the mind, to drop away from watching the mind, but use the mind, use attention skills to focus on the body, then the truth arises. So if you step away from watching your mind and you watch your body sensations, you start to get really self-aware. That's where your truth is. Because the truth is that our body holds our trauma. Our body holds our psychological and emotional experiences. The mind carries everything and everything. So the mind carries things that serve absolutely no purpose to us. It, it, it carries collective unconsciousness, things that we don't even know what we're thinking about. It carries, it just is a hot mess. But there's a way to get that clear. But the only way to get that clear is through the body. And then you go back to the mind. So the problem is that when we only do somatic work, we're doing halfway as well, because that's become the new fad. So I was going to do a breathwork session. They've released the trauma. They've shaken it out. They're good to go. A year later, they're a hot mess. And the reason why is we are way more complex than that. We are multi-layered. And we need to really, really embrace that about our humanity. We are multi-layered. And when you treat trauma, it has to be on all levels or you're not going to be complete and you're going to be sick in a year again because you're going to be re-triggered over and over and over. So there needs to be a top-down, bottom-up, all-in-between method. All the sides left, right, yeah. Everything possible. And the more that I... Um, work in this industry anymore that I clear my own trauma, the more I learn about other methods out there. And uh, like, I never in my life thought about plant medicine until this year. And I'm 45 years old, been practicing for 28 years. So it's just like, there's an other modalities because we are so complex and our unconscious mind is huge. So, you know, Freud talked about the iceberg. Underneath there, we're still discovering things about underneath there. That's what neuroscience is for. Neuroscience has discovered mirror neurons and neuroplasticity. 
but there's more. <laughs> there is more. And that's where the plant medicine research is getting to, that there's more. And there's a human soul. And there's a human heart. And then now everybody's onto this gut. So now the people are extremes only about diet. No, people. <laughs> Just like it's not only about the soma, it's not only about the gut. And it's not only about the heart. And it's not only about the spirit. We are dynamic, complex, incredible creatures is what makes life so magical. And because of that, we get to explore all these different sides of ourselves in order to heal. And honestly, it's the only way. If we pick one, we're going to get re-triggered. It's just guaranteed. I love the way you said that so enthusiastically because it really is incredible and amazing to have this human experience. And something that I notice is this tendency to try to find one singular answer to your problems. And like you mentioned, the more we fixate on finding one single path, we deny ourselves our own experience and our own privilege to be able to explore different avenues and stay open to different possibilities that we may not previously knew existed, that we may not previously have known can be life-changing for us, you know, on all different types of levels, whether it's a healing modality or simply um, allowing yourself to be open to different perspectives and, and opinions to impact your own human experience. And we have also a unique ability as humans where we can accept or reject certain concepts, which from my understanding, no other animal on the planet can do, you know, this ability to critically think. And yet critical thinking is something that, or like this idea, I guess, of like common sense isn't so common anymore. And we have a tendency to get really heady and try to choose one singular path or yeah, just like one singular path to solve all of our problems. But like you said, we're multifaceted, we're complex and we don't have to limit ourselves to only one type of thing. We don't have to limit ourselves to one type of identity, one type of healing, one type of career. We can bring all of those different components and interests that we have that create our experience. That's created. Yeah. To us, like there's something wrong with thinking the other way. You know, like I studied Western psychotherapy. So the thought of plant medicine or yoga or meditation, anything outside the box of psych of traditional psychotherapy and medication was like a no-no. And then they became this hate for medication. Then they got this hate for psychotherapy. Then they had this, and it, it, it kind of reversed on us because I live in Bali where it's like that, you know, like people are like psychotherapists, ew they've become like traumatized from that perspective and now they've cut it off completely, which is not really healthy because then they're just dosing in plant medicine, dosing in breath work and not cognitively integrating anything. And our mind is really important as well. And choosing which mindsets and all this sort of stuff, you know what I mean? Like it all really, really, really matters. And I think knocking anything, you can't knock medicine. You can't knock traditional psychotherapy either. All of it has a place. But of course, with questions, with critical thinking, you're not going to swallow everything, you know, um, definitely with a lot of um, a lot of question, a lot of critical thinking going into any of these, any of the methods, but they all have a place. 
Mm. I know that's something that you feel quite passionate about exploring, whether it's with your clients or in your own practice and within your own life is this idea of finding like empowerment and wisdom and self-love by going through the pain. I'd love if you can expand a little bit more about that. Yeah, um, unfortunately, this is what I believe based on my work on myself and others, but I don't think there's any way towards feeling your power and developing a sustainable sense of self-worth and self-esteem and self-confidence that is grounded deep within your being versus quite superficial, right? So a lot of the self-help stuff and a lot of mindset training, all that stuff, it's kind of super, I'm gonna adopt this mindset so I'm gonna feel bad about myself and I'm gonna look in the mirror and say I'm hot five day times and I'm gonna be this confident loving person. It's not deep within your gut, within your soul, you know what I mean? And the reason why is because you're not going deep into your trauma, into your shadows. Yeah, it's just like, it's like you're putting an icing on a cake without putting the flour and the batter and everything and you're just like icing the cake is gonna fall eventually. Because those things are going to look pretty for a little while. And this is what I've noticed within my work and within my own self, like doing a little bit of CBT and I lose a little bit of weight and I'm in the gym and I do a little meditation. I'm feeling great. But have I gone into the pain? No. The only way through the depth of feeling into your own power and your own light and your own radiation and your own strength and your own will and your own love for yourself is through the pain and we all have pain so pain is inevitable buddha said that pain is inevitable suffering is not was one of his sayings every human being on the planet is going to experience emotional and physical pain and it happens from inside utero so this is just like yeah we could go all we could go deeper and deeper with this conversation it's so inevitable because it could be like spiritual if you do believe in past life it, it starts from even before utero. So, so for some people, it's then. Some people, it's utero. And some people, it's before. But our trauma starts from, because according to psychology, the minute utero, we start to absorb things from our parents. So the fact is, pain is inevitable, right? Um, suffering isn't, because according to Buddha, when we resist pain, when we run away from pain, when we cling to pain, is when we suffer. When we go into the pain, Free and open, filled with love and curiosity is when we become free. That's mental freedom. That's empowerment. That's self-love. Not adopting a mindset that's cool and going and losing weight in the gym. That's not, (laughs) you know what I mean? Those are like, those are pretty things in life. You know, I love to go to the gym, buy a nice outfit, work with my friends, put on my red lipstick. That's amazing. But that's not my sustainable empower. Just the little human things in life, the little ego fun thing, like the cake at the party, right? Yeah. It's like, it's all of those things are okay. And it's okay to want them and it's okay to explore them and to try them on and to really take advantage of the different luxuries we have in like the 3D world. And yet, if you want to create lasting and sustainable change in how you experience life, how you experience your work, how you experience the world around you and how you experience yourself, most of all. I agree that a lot of the time you do have to lean in 
to that pain. And I'm wondering if you have a word of guidance for those that feel immense resistance to leaning into the pain. Because I can think of some people in my own life who have experienced some suffering, who have experienced situations that are, you know, less than favorable, really, um, you know, like ones that you don't want to remember, you just want to suppress. And they don't ever want to feel like that again. And of course, I've met a million people like that in my work. And um, that's why I think it needs to be done with a trained professional. That's where the trained professional belief that I have comes in. Um, because when you're doing trauma work, it's not on the mental level. It's not about remembering what happened. It's about the fact that your emotional experience is being triggered all the time in your life. And that trigger, that emotional experience is an obstacle towards your happiness, towards your self-love, towards you loving another, towards your, your relationships and your connections, which are the most important thing on the planet for each and every one of us, is our connections, our family, our love. And this is one big obstacle. And it's not about remembering the event. It's about the fact that you are feeling that feeling anytime you get triggered. And that is what we attend to in session. The felt experience of the trauma, not necessarily the memories of it. And what happens is that the only way all of science is shown in psychological research is showing for us to heal the felt experience, the obstacle towards our happiness and our ability to love and be loved is by going through the pain. Is by feeling that experience with a trained professional, helping you come to terms of where you can feel safe despite it and heal and grow from it. So the pain becomes a catalyst for loving yourself deeper because you have the courage to feel your own pain. And within feeling your own pain in a space of a trained professional, it transforms into love. It's mad, it, it, it's phenomenal how this works, but it's just, this is just honestly, I do sad to say this, but it's the only way I know now. Things might change in time, but it's the only way um, I know now how is to go into the pain in that way. One of the words that stands out to me as I hear you um, explain that is the word courage. And it truly is a courageous act to be with yourself and sit with yourself. And that's why it's so easy to be distracted all the time and that we live in a culture that pushes all of these distractions, whether it's, you know, social media and technology or walking down the street in a busy city, all of the billboards, everything pulling in our attention. And when we find those moments of silence, when we find those moments of quiet, in the beginning, it's unbearable because we are so used to noise that silence feels like torture. And the therapy is extremely uncomfortable. Mm. Meditation is extremely uncomfortable. Yoga is extremely uncomfortable because it, these are my methods, right? Plant medicine is extremely uncomfortable. <laughs> like, no, but if I, 
Family therapy, the worst. <laughs> therapy, oh my God, you're multiplying the stress. You know what I mean? Like, oh my God, it's a limit. They are so uncomfortable. But on the other side of that is a freedom that is beyond beyond what you Being can put into words in robotic survival mode and saying I'm going to accept that that's how I'm going to live the rest of my life you know and what's sad is that I used to get really angry by institutions especially when I found out more about institutional oppression and how that affected the people of my country that I worked with and the people in America that I worked with etc you know and living in Asia the whole world has institutions that dominate the entire world that oppress certain parts of the world you know whether it's a third world whether it's somebody that's dark-skinned somebody that's gay there's people within this world that are the minority that are oppressed Muslim I mean name it there's all these different words right gay Muslim transgender woman dark-skinned etc etc and I get so mad at these government heads and da 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 and I think it's because they're acting from robots. They really think it's the best thing for everybody to be white and straight. I think they really believe. I don't know what it just. I don't know what it is. But I think they kind of believe. Well, well, that's how we need to be to be happy. You know what I mean? Because I see people doing that to themselves. I see people bleaching their skin, getting skinny, getting rich, thinking that's the path for happiness, and doing everything to do that versus go to their pain. And I think we've been taught this. And the media, of course, is just making it a thousand times worse because I think the media believes it too, Violetta. I think the, the media believes, I need to teach this person. I need, they need to sell. They need to buy this bikini and, and get this cosmetic surgery because that's how they're going to be happy. And the media sells you and people think, oh, the media is evil and it's a conspiracy theory. I think it's because they're all traumatized and have no fucking clue. Sorry for cursing. That's and okay. Just leading us the wrong way because they are also not conscious. They're in the darkness. They don't, they have not seen the light. It's an interesting point that you bring up because there is this prevailing, I guess, like energy and concept of striving, striving culture. And even in the healing arts, like striving to be better, striving to heal. And that's another form of bypassing the experience at hand is wanting to pass it and not experience it and striving towards a certain goal. But like you said, experiencing pain and discomfort is a part of life. And the more we try to run away from it or um, like only invite certain challenges and think that once we accomplish this one challenge, it's never we're never going to be uncomfortable again is actually what perpetuates that cycle of never being satisfied and always looking for more and always feeling like something is off, something is missing. And I think one of the most beautiful, I guess, like experiences that I've had in my life was the shift that I felt when in my body, I just knew that, you know, like there's nothing more. There's nothing more to strive for that I can because I'm ambitious and I want to, and it's something that I can do and I want to do, but it's not something that I need to do. And just this idea of wanting versus needing, our needs are much easier met than we convince ourselves. And, you know, I notice myself falling into this trap from time to time too, 
And that's why I love conversations like this. And I love the practices that I have in my own life because they bring me back to simplicity. They bring me back to a remembering of what's truly important and that everything else is extra. Yeah. Yeah. So it really is. It's like the world mindset and the world consciousness is towards striving. But in striving, you neglect. You neglect the pain. And striving has the mentality of anything that's discomforting, we run from, we pop an Advil, we watch Netflix if we're sad, we eat, we do drugs, we have sex, we, we have addictions. So we have taught that um, as we strive and deny our pain, we take care of discomfort with addiction. That's basically the majority of the world. And that's the mindset that's been carried through us generation, generation, we're all living it. You know, everyone's an addict that's suppressing their pain through addiction and striving towards something that is not attainable and not sustainable. And then bypassing your real needs. As you said, not your wants, but your real needs. And our needs are very simple. Our needs are safety, connection, and satisfaction. They're not million dollars. They're not working 20 hours a day and making that much money and being the best CEO in the world or whatever. None of that. Our, 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 it's not even a human need. That's just a dysfunctional consciousness. Because humans want connection. Humans want to feel safe. Humans want to feel loved. Humans want to feel happy. That's just a consciousness we're bought into. That's not even people like, oh, it's human nature, greed. No, it's not. I really don't believe that. It's a conditioning. Yeah, I agree. I I have to be bold and say that I agree with you. And I saw this um, this article the other day, or maybe it was this morning, that just got me so angry because it was like excerpts of different executives that were really high up in their con- like in their companies, like from I don't know if it was around the world or around America, and that they were all saying that you don't get to where you are without basically, you know, overworking yourself and kind of giving into this mindset and this mentality of more, more, more. And that if you really want to be successful and to be somebody, to be known for something, that you have to make these really deeply personal sacrifices that actually make life worth living, like connection, like relationships, like family. And there was so many people agreeing that that was the pathway to success. And these were the heads of really big companies that we all know that, you know, like exist around us. More psychological tests than all of them, would they be happy? Absolutely. And it really disturbed me reading it because not only were they promoting this idea that you have to make personal sacrifices to extremes to be successful, but that if you don't, then you're lazy. Or if you say that you want to be successful, but you also want these other things that make life worth living, you should lower your aim because you're never going to get there if you continue to give time to these other things. And it's such an such an interesting thing to have read and to have um, witnessed these comments that were on either side of the spectrum. And I have to agree with you that when you are so deeply in it and you don't ask the questions if there is another way 
and you just blindly accept your experience, then you have no possibility of changing that reality. And that on a collective scale, we don't have a possibility of changing the way our work and life function, the way society functions until we really step towards that courage to first look at ourselves. Exactly. It takes a majority. And unfortunately, I don't know if this is a fact, but is the majority of the world poor? Or is it middle class? I would definitely not. That's like, though, there's like, you know, obviously the 1%. I would say most of the world would be on, you know, near poverty. Exactly. You know, like most of a lot of Asia, countries that I've worked in, a lot of South America, a lot of the islands. Exactly. So when you have that reality, because sad to say that if the majority is poor, they're living to survive. They don't have the luxury of meditation or choosing to go to therapy or all these things. Because they literally, I mean, I have clients that work three jobs, have no time for their children, you know, and that's the part of where a part of our part of our freedom, mental freedom, is this, this capitalism. And I use that word a lot in my darkest. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, because and that's where I get like where systems need to change, because we should have more time. Now, I have that privilege, financial privilege of where I can spend more time on spiritual practice and go to therapy. But how about the person that has no choice but to live the robot life? Like they literally have no choice. Yeah. They can't go, I'm going to quit my job because they literally don't even have a home. And what happened is that a lot of society is placed in that trap of where they have no choice. Yeah. Whether it's a very real, type of oppression and um, a really real situation where you don't have a choice to engage in different perspectives and different um, practices because you don't have the capacity because you're working on surviving day to day or whether it's this illusion because we feel it so strongly around us that we convince ourselves we don't have a choice even though there are a lot of people in the middle class and from a position of privilege who can create change, but still feel disempowered to do so. Yeah, I agree. I think there probably is a very huge sector of this world that has the choice. I have to believe that, that can um, transcend. And then when we do, we can help the ones that don't. You know, but I know it because people I know within my own culture that having the nice car, the nice wardrobe, you don't have to spend money on all of that. You don't have to have that job because then you don't have to have you don't need those things. So then you don't need that job that has you working 24 seven, that has you stressed out and unavailable for your children. Like those kind of choices come in. But then, no, we need that house. We need that car. We need to pay the mortgage. That kind of mindset is is the entrapment. It's like the Lego movie. We're all on a robot going to a job we hate. You know what I mean? Spending money in the store. We don't need the clothes. You know what I mean? Like the Thanksgiving sales, all that in trap money, things we don't need. That's the part where we, we really have a choice to buy, to, to, to pop that bubble. But the ones who are doing it literally to put food on the table every day is a different story. But yeah, there's a huge sector. And that was me. I was part of that rat race before I moved to Bali. I see both of us as 
coming from that position of privilege, myself included. And I'm wondering if you have words of guidance or encouragement for those that come, that maybe are in the middle class, that are able to make different choices, but feel that they can't. If you have any words of wisdom to help someone start to cultivate change so that they can experience more of life so that they can be both successful, but also happy and content. Yeah, instead of exhausted, anxiety, depression, popping Xanax, you know, which is a lot of people and suffering from IBS and all these other yeah, things. Yeah, I, I was going to say physical illness. Yeah. yeah, it's just so common. I think that um, the path is to start within. One minute a day, start connecting to yourself. And that just ripples into so much. You know, if one minute a day you start connecting to your body, to your heart, to your spirit, to your desires, to everything inside versus what's outside, the social media, the television, whatever. Connect to yourself inside and that's the path to freedom. You know, just that. And even for those, because I have worked with poor communities and those that honestly have to work 24-7 and live in squalor, one minute of peace and prayer brings so much better life. You know, it, it does. Even every human being in the world could benefit from one minute of mindfulness, of connecting to self, of connecting to soul, of prayer, whatever you want to call it, the 10 million words, you could use every religion as a different thing. It doesn't have to be religious. It's just connecting to you as a human being, you know, um, because religion could come with so much toxic stuff too. Um, just you, simple. You and your heart, you and your soul, you and your mind, you. Start really simple. And that's the path forward. It doesn't need to be huge. You need to give up your career. Yeah. Just start with that. Yeah. I love that answer. And if that one minute of being with yourself is uncomfortable, to practice staying with it just for one single minute and not forcing yourself to make a ginormous change straight away, but trusting that when you keep coming back to yourself and staying curious slowly but surely you're going to expand your capacity to ask those bigger questions and also attract opportunities that allow you to make those changes that you deeply desire exactly exactly and again i mean shifting the mindset it's huge and this was one of big buddha's as i said the, you know the four noble truths this was one of his main teachings and it is that let's not be scared of discomfort it is uncomfortable to wake up in the morning. It is uncomfortable to go to the gym. It is uncomfortable to eat spinach. It's uncomfortable to go to bed early, but the rewards are phenomenal. So life is about being uncomfortable. We don't need to run from discomfort with addictions anymore or with denying our pain and our soul and our heart and our needs and our desires. We don't need to. It's by opening the concept that uncomfortable is not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. And when you go into the discomfort, what's in there is just magical. And you know that with the gym and the, the food and the, even like vulnerability on a date. You know what I mean? Everything yeah. on a date. But love and relationships is 
one of is the most satisfying thing in life as far as I hear what everybody says. No one ever says that falling in love and having sex with the person that you love is not magical <laughs> and having a child. That's comfortable. Health, no, it's not. It's the biggest risk. Love is the most uncomfortable, biggest risk ever. So is having a baby. Being a parent is scary as hell. Extremely uncomfortable. It's just, that's just the reality of life. We have to move towards the discomfort. I love the way you put that. And I think it's a great place to invite our last and closing question. Yeah. Which circles back to you. So Stacy, when and where do you feel most like yourself? When I'm in connection with people who truly see me. Uh, and that could even be in myself. So when I'm in connection, I'll use the word connection. When I'm in connection with myself, another spirit in which I feel completely seen, completely heard um, for exactly who I am in that moment, authentically. Like I, I'm not needing to perform, I'm not needing to, to be perfect. I'm not needing to look great or be the best. I could be at my worst. I could be just like that purity of that experience of being in connection with myself or a way I'm able to really let go and be myself completely without wanting to fix or change anything and also being in space with someone else with that same experience. Thank you for that answer. And thank you so much for your time today and speaking Thanks with me. Thanks for having me. If you want to connect with Stacy and learn more about the impactful work she does, check out the show notes to see the best way to stay in touch. And if you loved what you heard today, share this episode with three friends and be sure to leave a five-star review on iTunes. We have a big goal of reaching and connecting one million women who have a desire to learn, grow, and live and lead from a place of alignment, confidence, self-trust, authenticity, and inner peace. And by sharing this episode with friends or colleagues, you can help us reach this audacious goal. This is how generational change happens. One woman reclaiming her voice and her power at a time. As always, take what resonates and leave what doesn't. Cheers to your health, wealth, and happiness. And I'll catch you in the next episode. Remember, expansive education plus inspired action equals an impactful life. Go ahead and follow me on Instagram at expand and impact. 